Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Actung, actung, and welcome to this latest Christmas reading. Um, and I'm heading eastwards for this one. This is um, from a book called Far East by Cecil Beaton. Now, Cecil Beaton was a fashion photographer, royal photographer, bright young thing, set designer, Oscar-winning set designer. Uh, he also happened to be my next-door neighbour when I was a small boy. Uh, we used to see him in his garden of his magnificent house and just beautiful gardens. I remember him very clearly photographing Bianca Jagger in the gardens, which must have been, gosh, when I was about five or six, something like that. Um, but he was also, during the war, um, working for the Ministry of Information and was attached to the RAF. And in that capacity, went around photographing the front line. He was also responsible for that very famous photograph of St Paul's during the blitz with the smoke all around it and also of that little girl Eileen Dunn with her teddy bear and her head bandaged um, which was such a powerful PR message but later in the war he he went to the Middle East in 1942 
um, and to the Far East in 1943-1944. And this section comes from the very beginning, January 1944, so the new year of 1944, uh, when he um, goes to the Arakan, which is about to be the scene of the big battle of the admin box. So uh, this is early January, and he's just come down from the northern Burma front uh, around Tidim and the Chin Hills, down to the Arakan. Whereas the scenery among the Chin Hill reminds one a little of parts of Scotland or California, the tablelands on the Arakan front are unlike anything one has ever seen, except perhaps in the background of idyls and fantasies painted on Chinese fans, screens or porcelain. Around Mondor, it is as if the compact mountain ranges have erupted and dotted the earth with hundreds of rugged hillocks. These hillocks are covered by people trees, spreading their huge dark leaves and by bamboos, while the feathery undergrowth is pierced by long white shafts of pampas. The landscape is pastoral, so lush, sylvan and peaceful is the general aspect in the brilliant sun or moonlight that, in spite of the intermittent thuds of gunfire, one cannot quite believe that deadly warfare is being carried on nearby. We came unexpectedly upon a battle. During a picnic lunch in a ruined temple, we heard gunfire. When we climbed a flight of stone steps to discover what was happening, two over-life-sized black satin crows swooped down from the magnolia trees and carried off the remainder of our meal. So we moved on down a disused road through an overgrown village, once bombed, now abandoned and looking like the garden of the Sleeping Beauty, with exotic creeping plants sprawling over half-destroyed bashers and summer pavilions, over the gutted motor car still parked in its neat cement garage. On again we went, past the farm where, in a courtyard, provisions were dumped, tins of bully beef and packages of biscuits lay among hundreds of small eggs, gourds and the exotic vegetation of the tropics. A group of young officers, with serious expressions on their sunburnt faces, were discussing the situation. During the night, some Japs had come down through that jungle range there and had taken up their former positions, which, inadvertently, we had not filled in before advancing further. Now this enemy group, with a two-pounder gun previously captured from us, was dug into the earth, snug as moles, and able to do quite a lot of damage to our rearguard. Several men had been killed, and the wounded at this moment were being brought back under fire. The stretchers were placed in the Red Cross ambulances, which the drivers manipulated on the rough roads with dexterity and compassion. A young major appeared, his khaki battle dress stained with dark, dry splashes of blood. We thought you'd been killed, the others greeted him. Are you all right? Better have your arm seen to, and if you can cross that bridge, do so quickly and on all fours. Meanwhile, in the fields of Paddy, Indian women accompanied by their naked children were still working, unmindful of the bursts of shrapnel. Bombing by air alone will send them seeking shelter. At the outset of this particular war, the Jap had already perfected the technique of jungle warfare. His ruses were wily, and at first we fell into some of his traps. He was continually popping up in unexpected places. Since then, the Jap has made mistakes. We are now accustomed to his oft-repeated devices, and are more adept than he at adopting the tactics of feint and surprise. It is we who are now holding back our fire from his sorties, only to turn it on later with greater effect for the real attack. We now never attempt to storm a hill under fire from flanking hills, but rather infiltrate by the back door. Our troops are no longer apprehensive of the Jap. The myth has been exploded that as a soldier he is a superman or inhuman. Admittedly, rather than be captured, he will fight bitterly, for he knows that to be taken prisoner 
is to be without hope, to be written off as dead, never to return to his country. His orders are to kill himself rather than fall into enemy hands. But it seems life is sweet even to a Jap. Often those who are taken prisoner, knowing they have little to expect from their own people, are willing to divulge secret information in the belief that they may be treated more favourably. Recently, the Jap airmen have been equipped with parachutes to be used only for bailing out over their own terrain. There is a story of a Jap pilot being shot on his descent over our lines by an officious and outraged compatriot. Here are a few extracts from my diary. It has been such a particularly lovely day today. The sky so blue, the sun bright, the air like crystal, that it was difficult to believe that as a result of these skirmishes, tragedy would soon be visiting some families back at home. The magnolias are flowering. It is hard to remember that those two leaves gently falling from that boff have been sniped off by a shot from a Jap mortar getting into closer range. Quick, it's time to move off, comes the warning. Yet the scenery makes it difficult to think of danger, or in terms other than those of holiday camping out. There, waiting in the shade of those mimosa trees, the mules heavily laden look as if they are carrying up the provisions for a large alfresco party. I did not realise this great packing up of the company's kit after the preliminary moving forward was, in fact, a step in the progress of the war, that our lines were advancing. When the howitzers, camouflaged with every variety of branch, are fired and the whole hill quakes, it is as surprising as if hidden guns were fired among the rhododendron bushes at a garden party. On to a small town, which a week ago we had wrested from the Japs. Previously it had been subjected to heavy bombing from both sides. Since the Japs took possession over a year ago, no one has lived in the houses, which now droop dejectedly under a covering of tropical plants. The grass has grown everywhere, over the front door steps, into the hallway, into the shelters, pagodas and deserted temples. Strips of corrugated iron have been flung by bomb blast into the leafless trees and remain there gesticulating like tortured souls. It is another sleeping beauty town, but there is no sleeping to be done here today. The Japs had bombed it again this morning, and when we arrived a battle was raging a few hundred yards away. We continued in an armoured car to watch the battle. An officer pointed. The Jap is hidden there in those bunkers. Although there are six of us to every Jap, still he sticks his ground with amazing tenacity. It takes time to winkle him out and kill him. Among the paddy rice fields and the more open spaces, the fighting has little of the aspect of modern warfare. The return to importance of cavalry and the mules laden with ammunition bring to the mind pictures of Stonewall Jackson and the American Civil War. It is only when one sees a treatment of the wounded that one realises how conditions have improved. So impressed was the army commander by one forward hospital that he made the experiment of showing the troops the elaborate equipment that had been brought on muleback from 300 miles away. He was not certain that some of the men might not be alarmed, but the experiment had the desired effect. The troops were tremendously impressed. They saw the casualties receiving such careful attention that the unconscious terrors of being wounded were minimised. Some of the camouflage attempts are half-hearted. Some tanks and armoured cars trundle along the open spaces, garlanded with dusty pine tree branches, looking like old Christmas decorations. Overhead, the enormous kite hawks were wheeling high in the sky, and a series of small black cloud puffs appeared and disappeared. Suddenly one realised that, higher than the birds, some Jap aircraft were flying amid our anti-aircraft shell bursts. You are instructed not to come out from cover to watch. If you wish to see the battle... Your face must be hidden by leaves or camouflage net, said the young officer, half-humorously. Our fighters were now in pursuit of the raiders, while below cattle were grazing and some white herons were hopping among the paddy fields. 
We called at a frontline hospital. A lot of horrors. One man's face was contorted with pain as his multiple wounds were being dressed. A piece of shell had got him on the shin. This was particularly painful while the bandages were being taken off, but he suffered like a brave child. I felt rather weak, saying silly things like, It'll soon be better. I dare say the psychology of the doctors is cleverer. They're quite rough. They rag their patients to their faces. See him now? Well, he's a jolly sight different from what he was two days ago. It's a pity I put that tip of his nose. It was hanging over his mouth when he came in. <laughs> Bloody funny. And the victim laughs, genuinely amused. The doctor confided that this man had only survived through his guts and determination, that most others would have given up and died. One Gurkha had been kicked in the face by a mule. The result was appalling to victim and beholder. The Indians suffer stoically. Some of the fellows in pyjamas with malaria said they would prefer not to be photographed, to wait until they were in battle dress again. An ex-waiter from the Savoy begged me to go with him to photograph the grave of one of his friends, Corporal Silk, who, rather than let his comrades be wounded by a grenade that had started to sizzle from the undergrowth, had lain upon it. The ex-waiter, after 18 months of bully beef, looked very wan, had lost three stone in weight, could not keep down any food. The doctors were looking after him as best they could, but it was impossible to give him what he needed most, a special diet. The work of the frontline doctors is one of the epics of the war. For instance, there is Dr Seagrave, almost continuously operating under fire. The old man's hand would tremble until it touched the flesh of his patient. Then he would slice the body open, as if he were taking the rind off a cheese, delve into the entrails, scoop out the shrapnel, and start on the sewing up. That job finished, another would begin. A young man, who had been shot through the eyes, is brought in. No, he has been unlucky. He's just one that lowers the average. Too bad. The old doctor shakes his head with a terrible look of anguish. It was as if he had never seen before such tragedy. Then the next case. A young man shot through the groin. The shrapnel goes in small, comes out enormous. A huge hole in the left side of the thigh. Ah, this scrotum wound's not so serious after all. He's lucky. He's one of the lucky ones. As we passed the river, they were bringing in a corpse, a horrible swollen parcel. This strip of water is a godsend, as the wounded men can be transported by sampan back to a base hospital without the agonising jolting over potholes that kills so many. We drove in a jeep over rough roads which were being sprinkled with water by native women wearing dark, gloomy-coloured draperies. This spraying from gourd-like vases seems futile, for it succeeds in laying the dust for only a few hours but I am told that it helps to keep the roads from rapid and total deterioration. The rates of pay for this job are small, yet the women are like princesses, doing their humble job with dignity and heart-rending poise. Some of their features are wonderful. Their children help too, and throw water from old cigarette tins, jam jars and other little receptacles. While motoring over these craters, we talked, most of the time, about subjects completely unrelated to the war, or our surroundings. The sun began to fade country became flatter. Everything became more sympathetic and feathery. The distance soft blue, the trees like spinach, and the humps of the hillocks dotted with lettuce-green undergrowth. The evening at once grew damp and cold, and we were thankful to arrive at a transit camp, where there were bashers of bamboo and, great luxury, an orderly to attend our every need. We opened a bottle of rum and were drinking in our tent when an eccentric old colonel appeared and in a voice deep down in his throat rasped, May I make my number with you? My companion became truculent and asked in a surly voice, Why are you dressed as a colonel? You're not a colonel, are you? 
and the old boy was rattled and suggested he should go to another basher. However, he remained to amuse us and explained that he was an armament expert. He produced a large trunk full of weapons, like a property box from a Ralph Lynn farce, also a black pie dog that he had bought for three chips. We eat an excellent dinner of well-cooked rations in a clean, light and congenial mess. Some of the smells here are wonderful, the charcoal fires and the Indian savours of spice and cooking. After sleeping in foxholes, which are dark and dank most of the day, and at night become almost rank, this fastness of bamboo seemed extraordinarily luxurious. We had been warned that there would be a great deal of gunfire in a few moments. It's us, not them. Although I was told that the barrage was enough to split the eardrums, I was so tired after my day in the sun that I lay all night quite unconscious of the guns at close range, sleeping soundly and, thanks to the loan of the orderly's extra blanket, warmly. January the 19th, in the jungle. I awoke early. It was not yet light. There were heavy drops on the bamboo leaves above my head. I pictured the rains making it impossible for us to leave this mountain peak. The mud is so soon churned up and the narrow paths in this jungle become obliterated. Traffic is at a standstill. However, I discovered that the drops were caused by the heavy dew which falls all through the air. Even this strange life in the jungle has many similarities with civilian existence. Major Abbott, my Cicerone, was feeling a bit piano on awakening. He sat on the edge of his bed delivering a soliloquy, while higher up the hill two young men were singing, Those half-witted fools, they wake up in the morning and talk such utter tripe to one another. They nearly drive me mad. I'm not liverish, but I'm too old to hear people sing at such an early hour. Abbott, like many who hate to get up early, prolongs the agony by dawdling in bed long after he is called and making the final decision to get out from the blankets when he is already late. Even so, he was quicker than I in dressing, for shaving is such a painful procedure and it takes me so long to nibble away with cold water. Abbott attacked his chin as if it was an elephant hide. He scraped so hard, so boldly, that I thought his steel blade was split. The knife over the bristles made quite a loud noise. The dry shaving laver under the lobes of the large hairy ears escaped the perfunctory douche of cold water and remained for the rest of the day. The Nagakyadok Pass was closed while a convoy came over the mountain road, but we managed to extract a permit from the military police and took pictures of this extraordinary path that has recently been made through the hillside. Some of the going is still dangerous, and to warn people against falling over the precipices, some of the road is screened with strips of sacking, tied at intervals to dead trees. This makes a most curious and unreal effect with the elaborate panorama in the distance. That evening, in the setting sun, far beyond this honey-coloured foreground, lay a lovely landscape of grey hillocks and small hills with sharp formations stretching for miles around. It was like an enormous panoramic background for a picture, possibly by Leonardo. Along this road, while the sun sinks behind the distant hills, the coolies hurry, barefooted carrying enormous tree trunks for bridging, or long flexible poles with hanging baskets. The waddling walk of these people, paralytic and jellified, looks affected. We crossed a river in a sampan to visit a mountain battery. When we arrived it was late afternoon. Many of the men were freshly shaved, their hair brilliantined. They were now relaxing and writing home, but they complained that there was nothing to write about. One man was having his hair cut. Private Sullivan was reading a novelette, Sunshine After Rain. Young Pierce of Birmingham, with a mop of fair hair, looking like Ariel, was cleaning out a mug from which most of the enamel had been chipped. Others were now rereading the troops' newspaper, already enjoined and thumbed by so many that its pages were limp and pulpy. They offered you a cigarette and then, if they liked you, 
brought out their wallet and showed you for admiration their most treasured possession, the photographs of their wives and family. They would tell you that they missed their mother's cooking, an easy chair to sit in and flowers arranged in a vase. The cooks were preparing the evening meal. Fred Ridden was straining the water from a cabbage. Most of the men eat their meals without any relish. So long as they have a brew of thick char three times a day, they are satisfied. Many officers say they would rather have a cup of tea to stimulate them after a strenuous day's physical work than a tankard of beer. It seems strange to find men and boys from all over England dumped on this extraordinary warren, climbing up and down the steep inclines, picnicking here for months on end, packing up and moving off to another hill. We drove in a jeep by the side of dried paddy fields from Borley Bazaar to a place near Cox's Bazaar called Elephant's Point. Situated on the long winding strip of sand stretching between the Indian Ocean and the jungle. Here at tremendous speed we raced across the hard sand in burning sun. It was a curious sensation. The sea was brilliant blue and silver. Here were health, sun, ozone. Little wonder that I felt so well. Indeed I was now feeling so sturdy, contented and free from anxiety that my whole appearance had changed. Even the vibrations I sent out were different. I felt years younger and had learnt patience. We arrived at our destination, a holiday camp where servicemen, tired, rattled and in need of a rest, are posted for a week's relaxation. The place delighted us. A group of a dozen bashers and huge recreation buildings, all made of this honey-coloured bamboo, create an effect as pretty as anything I've seen in Florida, California, Mexico or the south of France. These buildings were erected in five weeks. Some of the BORS on arriving here felt at first that everything was too grand for them but they soon came to enjoy the taste with which the whole camp is run. After spending a few days of relaxation here, bathing, playing games on the sand, sleeping at night without having to listen for possible dangers, the men seem completely changed. Eyes lose their look of strain. Faces are sunburnt and lines are ironed out. And by the time their holiday is over, they are anxious to be back with their regiment. I left the fighting areas with many impressions jangling through my head. Much of the time had been spent in being uncomfortable and doing things that do not normally interest me, but I had been without anxieties. I discovered that, degrading as this most remote and primitive existence can be, there are compensations, and that even warfare may bring a feeling of physical serenity and peace of mind. After two weeks, my clothes were incredibly filthy. My face had entirely changed, both in colour and in expression. Even my hair was thicker, though only with dust. Now I was heading for civilization. The rut would be deep once more. In the jeep we raced towards my airplane and captivity. This visit to the war had been in many ways an escape from war. But at this time of year the climate is ideal and the weather suited for the picnic life that must be endured for weeks, months and years on end. I was able to sympathise with the RAF officer who, on hearing that he was to be sent home, confided, I'm beginning to be really frightened now. It may be such an anticlimax to go back to England after all these years of thinking about the place and building it up in my imagination. I've glorified it all this time, and now that I'm really going back, I'm afraid.'